Welcome back to the Rights and Liberties Podcast, where we are discussing the Federalist Papers. Today we will talk about Federalist 20. I like to organize these podcasts around three big ideas. So, here are three big ideas about Federalist 20. Big idea one. Federalist 20 as a whole is taken up by Madison's examination of the government of the Netherlands. Big idea one focuses on a distinctive element of that government, its use of the principle of unanimity as a mode of governing. Big Idea 2 looks especially at the Stadtholder, who is an executive figure in the Dutch Republic. Big Idea 3 is a return to a focus that we have seen a, a few times. Madison is especially interested here in the problem of governing over groups or other political forms, as against governing persons. In Federalist 20, Madison offered an extended look at the government of the Netherlands, which he described as a, quote, confederacy of republics, or rather, of aristocracies of a very remarkable texture, end quote. Confederation was made up of seven provinces. And just remember, the Federalist Papers were intended to support the case in favor of adopting the new constitution as an improvement on the government under the Articles of Confederation. As we saw in Federalist 18 and 19, so too we see here, a focus on examining real-world examples of governments that might help inform that decision. Do confederations work? How do they work? Madison's argument looked at one in the real world to find out. This brings us to our first big idea, on the principle of unanimity as a mode of governing. Here's Madison on this point. Quote, the Union is composed of seven co-equal and sovereign states, and each state or province is a composition of equal and independent cities. In all important cases, not only the provinces, but the cities must be unanimous. End quote. Now, what the principle of unanimity means is that all must agree. All provinces, all cities on this account, must agree on a policy for it to be implemented. One way to think about the principle of unanimity is to compare it to supermajoritarianism. Supermajoritarianism requires majorities of larger than 50% plus one for certain kinds of decisions. Unanimity in some way is like that, but some steps farther, since it requires everyone to agree. We often speak of supermajoritarian requirements in certain political settings. You may recall that the Articles of Confederation required nine of 13 states to agree. And of course, the Constitution prescribed supermajorities in congressional decision-making for certain kinds of decisions. And it is worth thinking about this question as a general matter for politics today and politics in the future. What is the purpose of supermajoritarian requirements? And one can see an argument in favor of unanimity. If a policy is implemented, even though I object to it, I might feel as if my views have not been given a fair hearing. Unanimity means that no policy is implemented unless everyone agrees with it. And one benefit is that nobody will feel as if a policy has been instituted over their objections. I think you can probably see the difficulties with the principle of unanimity. Unanimity is a high standard, so high that it might make policy responses to any policy problem very difficult. One way to see what is at stake here is to consider Madison's discussion of the role of the states general in the Dutch Republic. Quote, 
The states general have authority to enter into treaties and alliances, to make war and peace, to raise armies and equip fleets, to ascertain quotas and demand contributions. In all these cases, however, unanimity and the sanction of their constituents are requisite. End quote. As you can see, the states general had a great deal of authority, but that authority, as Madison described it, was modified by the principle of unanimity. So Big Idea 1 is about the principle of unanimity. Big Idea 2 is about the stadtholder. Quoting Madison, quote, The executive magistrate of the Union is the stadtholder, who is now an hereditary prince. End quote. Being a prince gave the stadtholder political importance not drawn directly from the office. Quoting Madison again, quote, His principal weight and influence in the Republic are derived from his independent title, from his great patrimonial estates, from his family connections with some of the chief potentates of Europe, and more than all, perhaps, from his being stadtholder in the several provinces, as well as for the Union, in which provincial quality he has the appointment of town magistrates under certain regulations, executes provincial decrees, presides when he pleases in the provincial tribunals, and has throughout the power of pardon." End quote. In addition to all this, Madison described a range of duties, as Madison put it, quote, considerable prerogatives, end quote, which seemed to have been a function of his political office rather than his personal identity. These included what Madison described as the, quote, authority to settle disputes between the provinces when other methods fail, end quote, and significant command responsibilities for land forces, as well as the position of Admiral General of the Navy. So the stadtholder seems to be an important office with important powers, but it also seems to be an office where at least part of the effective authority of the stadtholder is a function of the stadtholder's identity as a prince, rather than as a function of the duties of the office. Madison's evaluation of the performance of the government in general was not positive. Quote, imbecility in the government, discord among the provinces, foreign influence and indignities, a precarious existence in peace, and peculiar calamities from war, end quote. One of the problems with the principle of unanimity is that it can make policymaking very difficult. One can imagine two possible outcomes of this. Either things don't happen, or they happen in defiance of the rules. Quoting Madison discussing the Netherlands once again, quote, in matters of contribution, it is the practice to waive the Articles of the Constitution. The danger of delay obliges the consenting provinces to furnish their quotas without waiting for the others, and then to obtain reimbursement from the others by deputations, which are frequent or otherwise as they can." End quote. Madison got into still more detail about this. Quote, it has more than once happened that the deficiencies had to be ultimately collected at the point of the bayonet, end quote. The problems were no less great in matters of foreign policy, and quoting Madison on these problems, quote, in critical emergencies, the states general are often compelled to overleap their constitutional bounds. In 1688, they concluded a treaty of themselves at the risk of their heads. The Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 by which their independence was formally and finally recognized, was concluded without the consent of Zealand. Even as recently as the last Treaty of Peace with Great Britain, the constitutional principle of unanimity was departed from. 
end quote. Why is this important? Madison addressed this. Quote, a weak constitution must necessarily terminate in dissolution for want of proper powers or the usurpation of powers requisite for the public safety. Whether the usurpation, when once begun, will stop at the salutary point or go forward to the dangerous extreme must depend on the contingencies of the moment. Tyranny has perhaps oftener grown out of the assumptions of power called for on pressing exigencies by a defective constitution than out of the full exercise of the largest constitutional authorities. End quote. There is an implication here worth noting. A charge that was sometimes heard was that the Constitution of the United States was intended to make possible a tyranny by the national government over the states. So this turns that claim around. The tyranny to worry about, as Madison described it, was the tyranny coming from a defective constitution, not one animating what Madison described as, quote, the largest constitutional authorities, end quote. One way to think about this, as Madison saw it, was to consider the effect of the office of the stadtholder. Quoting Madison on this, Notwithstanding the calamities produced by the stadtholdership, it has been supposed that without his influence in the individual provinces, the causes of anarchy manifest in the Confederacy would long ago have dissolved it. End quote. In other words, the thing that held the Confederacy together was a strong executive, even if the source of the executive's authority was based not just on the powers of the office, but also on the executive's personal characteristics. We have seen in earlier essays discussion of the ways in which domestic instability was associated with vulnerability to international pressure. Madison connected this with difficulties of the Constitution, noting that, quote, the surrounding powers impose an absolute necessity of union to a certain degree, at the same time that they nourish by their intrigues the constitutional vices which keep the Republic in some degree always at their mercy, end quote. Some sought to address these problems, but according to Madison, quote, found it impossible to unite the public councils in reforming the known, the acknowledged, the fatal evils of the existing Constitution, end quote. Similar failure came, came to attempts at, quote, establishing a general tax to be administered by the federal authority, end quote. The third big idea is one we have encountered before, the distinction, the distinction between governing over individuals and governing over groups or other political units. This was something important to consider when thinking about the government of the USA, Madison thought, and the inference we are invited to draw is that the Articles of Confederation was a government over governments rather than a government over persons. Madison grounded this theoretical claim and a claim about the importance of learning from practice. Quote, I make no apology for having dwelt so long on the contemplation of these federal precedents. Experience is the oracle of truth, and where its responses are unequivocal, they ought to be conclusive and sacred. End quote. And there were many facts that he discussed in Federalist 20, but he seems to have thought that he had saved the most significant of these for last. Quote, the important truth which it unequivocally pronounces in the present case is that a sovereignty over sovereigns, a government over governments, a legislation for communities, as contradistinguished from individuals, as it is a solecism in theory, 
So in practice, it is subversive to the order and ends of civil polity by substituting violence in place of law or the destructive coercion of the sword in place of the mild and salutary coercion of the magistracy, end quote. Thank you for listening to the Rights and Liberties podcast. For more about the Sunwater Institute, please visit us at sunwater.org.